Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, I'm Anna Volkmer. Thank you for listening to the Dementia Researchers podcast. In a change to our usual host and panellists format, this podcast will feature myself and my good friend and colleague in the Department of Language and Cognition at UCL, Dr. Vitor Zimmerer. And today we're going to have a conversation about a topic we, which we've been discussing quite a bit. And it work, it's working around the title, What is Normal? Using Language and Big Data to Inform the Diagnosis of Dementia. But first, we should really introduce ourselves. So um, I'll go first. I'm a te senior teaching fellow in the Department of Language and Cognition at UCL. And I'm also a senior speech and language therapist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosciences at UCLH, specializing in dementia. And I've recently finished my PhD on developing an intervention for people with language-led dementia and their families. So Vitor, tell us a little bit about yourself. Happy to do that. Um, hi, I'm Vitor Zimmerer. I'm a teaching fellow in the Department of Language and Cognition at UCL, so same department, and I carry out research on language in different clinical populations. And I am particularly interested in language profiles associated with specific disorders, such as dementia, but also stroke, schizophrenia, depression. Uh, and I'm interested in the relationship between language and other aspects of behavior and cognition, which of course is also important for, for work on dementia. I have developed um, tools that allow us to look at language profiles in a slightly more efficient way. And um, perhaps that's um, the vision, detect early change that can be uh, identified as a symptom of, of dementia. Yeah, really exciting work. Um, and it kind of does link in with the topic we've discussing, doesn't it? Which is this importance of understanding the range of normal behaviours in our population in order to better inform the diagnosis and the treatment of dementia. And I wonder, Vito, maybe you could start us off by explaining this a little bit more. So why is it important to understand normal language um, in terms of diagnosis, would you say? Well, perhaps we should start by just quickly explaining why understanding language in general is important because um, obviously one of the important questions in our efforts um, in coping with dementia, dealing with dementia is um, early, early detection. So we want to detect behavior that is not typical and language is a quite quite rich uh, aspect of human behavior, right? Um, so, you know, we produce it all the time. So language is natural behavior and we're not just measuring a response to some kind of abstract or, or, or very artificial test. Um, and also it's behavior that um, is related to quality of life. So we're not just measuring, we're measuring something that directly relates to the person's ability to socialize, to follow the news, to be a part of society, or nowadays to, to follow government guidelines, for example. Yeah. Right? And language is cheap, so it's, you know, all it takes is a microphone and perhaps a computer if you want to run more sophisticated analysis, but computers by now are also very cheap. 
uh, relative to you know stuff like MRI or um, some types of you know uh, DNA analysis of blood sampling. Uh, language I call it well connected, so it involves um, large networks in the brain on both hemispheres, uh, cortical, subcortical. So changes in the brain are likely to manifest at some level of language processing, language use, uh, and also it's complex enough to allow description of different profiles. So we have the way people produce speech, so phonetics, that's an important part of language use, but then also the grammar, the, the, the vocabulary, uh, what's called pragmatics, so whether what we're saying is appropriate or not, or the way we kind of package information, uh, our message into you know, sentences. Um, and all of that, each one of those subdomains is itself very, very complex. So we have a lot to work with that allows us to define very specific profiles that we can associate, not, not even with dementia as opposed to other disorders such as you know, depression, but even look at subtypes of dementia. For example, distinguish between Alzheimer's type dementia and perhaps um, uh, like a logopanic um, variant of permanent progressive aphasia. So that's great. So language is, um, is useful and there's a lot of potential and a lot of it is, has not been explored yet, right? Yeah. Um, so why is a super long answer to a very short question, I apologize. So why is understanding what normal is so important? Well, that complexity of language, as I said, it's a blessing because it allows us, it has these many dimensions uh, along which we can describe individuals, but it's also a curse. So because complex systems in psychology are very sensitive to a range of variables, um, but biographical variables, uh, age, gender, education, socioeconomic status, of course, dialect, but also other clinical variables that may not be that important for the dementia diagnosis. Um, so we have a normal range that it's not just your typical bell curve along one dimension, but it's very, very complex. And so far, it's not been explored enough. So if we want to identify atypical behavior, well, how, how certain can we be if it's really atypical, especially if we want to detect early change, right? Of course, at some point, there's this threshold at which we say, okay, this is very kind of typical for Alzheimer's disease. But by that time, we don't need the diagnosis tool that much anymore. Well, we can still use it to, to track changes as, um, for example, related to an intervention, but we want to detect early change, and that will be very subtle. And when it comes to subtle change and the variety of, that we find within the behavior of a, within the normal population, there's still so much work to do. Um, and I'm going to stop talking now because I think I've said so much, um, but I think that's why uh, understanding norm, what normal is in languages is important for the diagnosis of dementia. But I understand that it's also relevant for, for speech and language therapists and, and intervention, right? Absolutely. Uh, I want to talk a bit about that. Yeah, no, I, I, as we are talking about this today, I've actually thought of some new things. So we've discussed this a lot, Vita and I, and one of the things I've actually been um, reflecting on 
is so firstly in my clinical setting where I work with people with dementia and their families people might often come in and they say gosh you know I think I've got dementia I'm experiencing um, occasional word finding difficulties for example or they'll they'll feel that their speech or their their family members speech is, is not normal so to speak um, and sometimes that is you know, indeed uh, a sign of something else going on. But sometimes what people don't understand is actually the, the breadth of normal, normal speech and language that we use in conversation. You know, word finding difficulties is a great example because word finding difficulties is something we can all relate to. You know, everybody experiences a word finding difficulty yeah. once in a blue moon um, and it might be because you know the dog's barking while you're trying to have a conversation and you need to rush out the door in 10 minutes it could be simply that you've forgotten somebody's name and and a word finding difficulty really interrupts a conversation and causes conversation to break down and we have these specific rules in conversation as to how we repair conversational breakdowns so for example you might say um, if you got somebody's name wrong, you might say, oh, um, Adam, I mean Vitor, and you might self-correct yourself. You might, um, uh, use, you might simply repeat yourself, you might apologize, but we have different rules and, and strategies to do that. But what can happen is that when we are more fatigued, or if we're going through a stressful period, or if we have something else going on, other life changes, it may also be because we have a diagnosis of dementia, that we may experiencing, be experiencing more word finding difficulties. And I think that when that happens, often family members will automatically identify um, some of these behaviors as not normal and thus indicative of some other kind of um, underlying pathology. Um, and the other thing that then impacts upon is the way family members cope with it. So we often find that in therapy, um, family members arrive asking for guidance on what they should do and what they feel is useful often you know to deal with this this kind of word finding difficulty um, is often rather than allowing a person I just gave an example of a person kind of self-repairing what often family members will do is will they'll correct a person or they will um, tell the person exactly how to say it and they'll become very focused on supporting the person to produce a perfectly normal um version of a, of a word or, or some or a sentence and that can actually cause conversation to break down further but i guess i'm i know i'm now <laughs> Vita and i are very good at talking so i've now given a very <laughs> long answer but, but i have a question yeah that's related on. to that because i think one important well, I don't know if it's an important question or not, actually, that's my question. It's important whether someone has word-finding difficulties because of dementia or because of something else. Like if we think about what it does to a conversation, do you treat word-finding difficulties in people who are experiencing dementia? Would you, do you think you treat this differently than in a, when, you, when you want to repair that conversation than you do if someone that's not experiencing dementia? That's a really good question. Um, so uh, do you mean as a clinician or mm -hmm. would we provide different strategies if a person has got dementia than if they hadn't? Mm -hmm. 
I guess if a person hadn't got dementia, so if the person didn't have any underlying diagnosis to speak mm -hmm. of at all, um, then generally one would expect that they would have strategies to repair their own conversations. And actually we might focus less on the conversation per se, but more on how they are feeling about that conversation. So um, you and I have spoken a little bit about this idea of the worried well. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes that means that we are working with the individual on what their areas of concern are, what's triggered those concerns, how can they kind of cope more broadly with, with, with conversation and interaction. Whereas if somebody has an underlying uh, diagnosis that is caught, so a dementia that is causing the word finding difficulty, um, we would be much more likely to actually specifically examine their strengths, areas of strengths and difficulty and base any strategy so that there would be a broader range of therapy options available. So obviously we could tackle the word finding difficulties potentially at the root with some maintenance work. But it, I'm, I've started talking about conversation analysis. Um, that's what I've been describing mm. when I've been describing the way we interact and the way conversation breaks down. And what we often use is as an applied conversation analysis um, approach to an intervention. So we would examine the conversation of the couple together and we would be much more likely to actually um, tackle strategies or identify repair sequences that um, allow the conversation to flow, to maintain some kind of normality for the person, to help them identify what they feel is not normal, so to speak. I don't, in some ways, using the, the phrase normal in this case then becomes a bit more stigmatized and difficult because um, you know everybody is so different you know I've met people who um, when we video recorded their conversations it always springs to mind a couple that I worked with and um, we videoed recorded their conversations and I, I asked them about a certain behavior what, which we call um, a testing question so essentially that means that the partner so it was the unimpaired partner who didn't have any difficulties she would continuously test her husband in a so their entire conversation was based around kind of um asking questions that they both knew the answer to almost like a teacher-student relationship mm -hmm. that isn't typical of the majority of our population and we know that because of the ca the conversation analysis literature that's examined the breadth of the population but for that couple it was typical which brings us right round to this idea of the breadth of what's normal and there's a huge breadth of normal um, in our society in terms of how we communicate how we and how communication influences our relationships and um, and you you kind of talked about that right at the beginning of this conversation um, and, and actually, because I think conversation forms a key part of our relationships, it's also very personal. And I know you and I have thought about how we could potentially find out what is normal and what methods we could use to gather data like this. Yeah. And some of that data, maybe you could speak to this, we've debated, you know, what is the best, what's the safest way that people might feel most comfortable gathering this type of data? Well, I think it starts by recognizing 
again, a strength of collecting language data in that it's naturalistic behavior. Yeah. So, um, so what we're moving towards to is not in it's not using a naming test or a sentence picture matching or picture description or anything like that, but just recording people as they speak as they're having a normal conversation. Because not only is this behavior people feel comfortable with, right? At least in many cases, but also it's rich behavior. It gives us great depth of data. Uh, having you talk about you know, uh, your job gives us much more information, even if we just focus on the language than uh, having you um, name a whistle, right? Um, so I think it starts there. And the second point, I guess, is something that links to what you just said about um, whether someone is having a good day or bad day and how that influences language, right? So we, right now, it seems that for, for a variety of reasons, um, diagnosis can be very snapshot based. So um, in many studies, you do you know, perhaps one test, unless you do an intervention and you test and retest and you may be using several baselines. Often you, you have that person on that one day and, you, yeah. and you're supposed to make, to infer from that. Um, so the next step, I guess, would be to use more longitudinal data. And again, language data is really good for that because if we can just record conversations regularly, and I'm not just talking about the, perhaps a bunch of weeks so that we have a more stable baseline and we can understand where that person is in this phase of their life. Um, I'm talking about perhaps recording over years and understanding how progression looks like in typical development, including aging. So, um, no, I turned 40 uh, last year. No, not last year, the year before. Jesus, I'm sorry. Uh, these are things that one tends to, to ignore. <laughs> Once you turn 40, um, you're, you're, the GP asks you to come in and, uh, and for them to get a blood sample from you. Did this happen to you because of cholesterol? Not yet. Two and not a half yet? weeks. In two and a half weeks, they'll start asking. Okay. <laughs> I'll yeah. know what to expect. Yeah. It's like a rite of passage. Oh, okay. So I'm getting regular checks up, checkups now. Oh, yeah. okay. now. Uh, <laughs> but what if we don't just do that? We don't just look at a blood sample, but we also have participants give a language sample um, every few years from a certain age on. And that would help us really understand in combination with all the data that we have about a person's background not just the range of normality in the population, but also the range of normality in progression in aging. And with that, we would have a wonderful model with which we could use to detect deviation from normal. Right? Um, because I guess we will find out that the variance in the population is so wide that it's almost impossible to detect early change. Yeah. Everything that is slightly off will probably be found in a substantial part of a population if you just measure once. But what we want to find is whether the trajectory is different. And I think that will be easier to, that will be the more reliable finding. This is someone who, whose slope, if we map the variables over time, 
looks different from how it should look like, regardless of where that slope is on the absolute axis, whether that number is high or low, it's decreasing too quickly. It's rising too quickly. And I, my intuition is that this will be key. Um, but for that, obviously, first of all, we need to have the infrastructure to collect all this. Yeah. Uh, we still don't know which variables to pay attention to, so we still don't have the proper module, models. But also, um, it's an intrusion, obviously. Um, um, and we don't know whether people would be ready for this. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, isn't it? And because the, the link with, you know, this idea of recording somebody and, and it is an intrusion and also the implications of it. You know, if, if you're suggesting or you're, you know, or if, if, if we're suggesting there is a point when our trajectories indicate that our linguistic competence, so to speak, yeah. is somehow linked with a, a dementia diagnosis that has such an enormous implication. Yeah. Um, and I certainly, as a clinician, I have walked out of um, clinical rooms following somebody or a family where a person's just been diagnosed with dementia and I can hear relatives saying right now you know dad's got dementia now so we'll take away all his bit we'll pay all the bills he'll he won't be able to go shopping anymore we, we won't give him any money we will he won't have Terrible. to do anything so it's you know it's this I think that it's not only the intrusion of data collection of collecting that information but also the I can imagine the implication the kind of implication in terms of um competence and mental capacity in one's life would be for some people mammoth because there's a huge proportion of people we already know don't want to know if yeah. they've got dementia yeah. yeah and this is going to be a risk and we're now entering this kind of sci-fi territory uh, so yeah. a scenario in which we already have a model right and we already have that knowledge but we're already having the discussions, right? So right now, if we look over the Atlantic, right, we may be facing, we may be, um, you know, there, there, there are, it's election year in the US and both candidates are from, you know, different sides, almost accused of having some neuropathology, right? <laughs> both. And <laughs> one way, uh, and one subject, that is really important during these discussions is of course language. Right? Yeah. So look at Trump's language in the eighties, like look at how he once produced this very complex sentence and look at the rambling now, or, Oh, you know, sleepy Joe and his gaffes has that increased. And we're going to enter territory in which we may have a model to actually just use the public data yeah. and start making, um, well, conclusions, right? To different degrees of, obviously, of confidence. But, you know, that may be happening. And some, you know, retroactively, these, ex these, these studies have already been carried out. So Ronald Reagan, who died of Alzheimer's. Just thinking, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, was compared to uh, George H.W. Bush, so uh, yeah. Daddy Bush. And their languages were compared, um, and there was a finding that Ronald Reagan's language changed over his presidency, while uh, Bush's language remained more stable. 
and whether this is already a sign of something. Um, and the more we know, uh, the more we need to be aware of the consequences to society. And that involves having a debate about this, what should be possible and what not. And yeah. also, of course, just having the, just having the kind of the legislative foundation to, to, to do things responsibly. Yeah. Uh, so that, yeah, with, with every technology, it's, it's, it's used for good. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, and that's the research, you know, that isn't it, the research component is the ethical responsibility, but certainly it's, it's quite, it's more and more common now, if I meet somebody um, clinically, actually, they will be able to present me with a video recording yes. of them having a conversation pre-injury, pre-diagnosis, pre-whatever, and, um, and we are more and more able then to, to measure difference in in a clinical sense um and that's just people volunteering examples you know i um but if people actually i guess as we if as we as a society do more of this for example i can imagine you know you and i Vito, we've done a couple of podcasts together now they're really conversational aren't they <laughs> um and actually there'll be more there'll be more sources of our, of our yeah. incidental interaction conversation that could be mined for, for this. But it's never gone so far that you asked someone to provide you with videos or, or um, audio from a few years ago or so doing diagnosis. Have you ever done this actively? Or are you only talking about people already coming in with, um, with No, we've done it actively, but not in, I've mm. never used it as a diagnostic tool. Mm -hmm. I've only ever used it well, I say diagnostic tool. I've never used it as a diagnostic tool for a, a medical diagnosis of like diagnosing a dementia, but I've certainly used it as a tool to identify um, the, the, the symptoms of the dementia. So by that, I mean, you know, did this person really uh, use... Um, complex sentences did these people this couple really have test questions routinely you know mm -hmm. did this family um really you know were they real jokesters so there was a couple of, i can think of a couple of examples where somebody has presented me with a family video to demonstrate what a um a, a joker inverted bracket so to, that their family member was to mm -hmm. demonstrate that they were the life of the soul of the party that they could hold court and tell stories and that after their diagnosis they'd become a very um quiet person who didn't participate in that and that 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 person had become their their entire conversation was then um meaning that they were being identified as a quiet serious person so i mean that's just a great example of how conversation actually reflects your personality and your relationship and then we and his goal was to become he what he identified as somebody who told anecdotes who was a funny person so then we were able to identify um, what the family were doing to perhaps uh, so they were often talking over the top of him or they were talking really quickly and not giving him opportunities to interject whereas previously the conversation was often um, dominated by him so um, they they actually they he was given loads of opportunities to to contribute so in a way we were then drawing the family's attention 
to what what strategies what were you doing in conversation not only what was your partner doing the person with dementia but what was the family members strategies to enable this um style of conversation and then that was all that's always really helpful and um, so yes in 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 short we would ask people to bring samples in absolutely and more recently um we have in the current climate also um explored conversations via zoom you know because yeah. it, which has been also very interesting <laughs> <laughs> but then you may not have enough data to compare no right no in those cases we haven't really had any data to compare back at all and really it's been very novel because you know when you know how often do you zoom with your spouse <laughs> well but then there's skype i think about that i mean obviously um there is a history to by now you have so many grandparents talking to the yeah. children over skype etc so there, there is experience already but but it's true like you know when we ask what is normal there's also a new normal that we have to that we'll have to cope with right? absolutely but it's just interesting to see that there are these two notions of normal that we're talking about there's the population normal which yeah. may be relevant to to detect abnormality and we need to we need to kind of build solid models of language change of of typical behavior but then there's the individual normal yeah. so it's this normal for for that person and do you want to go back to that to that normal right and in both cases it just seems that having a history of recordings um may be very very beneficial right yeah absolutely. especially since i mean i don't know what you what you would say about this but how, how much do you trust if you don't have a recording just people's recollection of how someone used to be or their descriptions uh, how useful is that how accurate is that what do you think gosh well you know clinically with my clinical hat on we always um we we have to trust that their description of what they perceive their um their i guess conversation to have been like and actually what we tend to, to use then is more of a, a much broader brushstroke was your were you so there's there's a number of rating scales that you can use with both the person and their partner and they're certainly also used in um research around interventions so they're often kind of more descriptive rating scales was he were you did you consider yourself somebody who would regularly interrupt people did you consider yourself somebody who was a chatty person what did you consider yourself somebody who was a listener and then then partners then we try and validate that with partners opinions as well mm -hmm. um and there's i guess that's more qualitative and um, and actually when i you know which is also really helpful because that's yeah. the impression that's been given it's less objective um but you know in research in terms of like, i would um often use qualitative research methods in the work i've done and actually it's really important because you're you're asking people about their experiences of conversation in in qualitative research um often and then actually their experiences of conversation are often what influence their quality of life and um, and we've talked about you know having data from lots of people but actually often the data the in, what matters to the individual is is quite different than what matters to the population at large yeah. Yeah. um yeah. yeah interesting 
I mean, obviously, we've been talking about language a lot, but I think we should also add that this is not just an issue language scientists work with. I mean, um, there are, of, of course, many behaviors, many aspects of behaviors that change as the result of dementia. And yeah. uh, in each of these domains, you can actually make a similar case. So I'm, I had some contact with researchers who were looking at gait in Alzheimer's disease. So the way people walk and how that may change, um, whether your steps are symmetrical, how many steps you take for a certain distance, even how much you walk. And their solution looks very similar to what we're doing. Just, at, you know, the optimal solution would, I guess, be just attach a device to the person that just gets you a lot of data about you know, when people walk, how much they walk, how they walk, and have models of typical walking and then identify atypical walking and perhaps walking that's, that's related to Alzheimer's disease. And it doesn't have to be as fine-grained as that. It could, it could be, you know, when we think about tracing apps, for example, how many social contacts do you have? How long, how long are your social contacts? we have to keep in mind that a lot of these data are already being collected, right? Yeah. So, and people actually, with, sometimes without knowing, just voluntarily donate these data, often for advertisement purposes. So they just yeah. want you to think about you know, Burger King more often or whatever. But, um, but what a lot of researchers are proposing is just to use that to look at the wide range, not just language, but a wide range of behavior that may help us identify dementia earlier and make a real impact on people's lives. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we just spoke about that with um, you know, the technical challenges, but also s challenges to, soci to society when it comes to, to carrying out that work. And, and, and that reminds me of one of the points from, from our previous discussion, which is actually the importance about the breadth, like having a vast number of samples in this, because you know, often um, we use uh, formalized, standardized psychometric tests, which have been uh, uh, developed um, and they've been tested on a group of normal people. They've been tested on a group of people with various diagnoses. Um, but often that sample is about 30 or 40 people. And then I use them clinically or we use them in research studies. And there's a whole group of people who may have a diagnosis of dementia, but hit ceiling. Or maybe yeah. they experiencing in their domains, their lives. So I've had a number of um, people I've spoken to recently for whom the, they are scoring ceiling on all these tests. And yet there's something that's changed. And so actually this, this group of normal 30 or 40 people that they've tested, it just isn't adequate to reflect um, the range, the range of normal. Yeah, I mean these. Uh, let's say naming tests, for example. I mean they are oh, the classic example for yeah. um, you know a useful but flawed test. Um, perf good performance in a naming test, and, and you know we both know it is dependent on so many things that are yeah. not directly related to the health of the person. Even just being familiar with the test situation yes. can make a huge influence, and that gives you a lot of education effects. Right? Yeah. So you have a double education effect. You have the education effect of perhaps someone just knowing more words uh, and that being normal for the person. Um, I think if you look at the Boston naming test, um, many educated people in their late 60s, early 70s will do really, 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 really well. Right? Yeah. 
um, and you can probably give them a harder test and it will still, so, it, so it, it's, they reach feeling, ceiling too early, right? So just, just someone reaching ceiling doesn't mean that there's nothing. And somebody failing, similarly, you know, I've worked, uh, yeah. people failing or getting very low scores also, you know, there's plenty of people, there's an item on the Boston naming test, which is a pretzel. And there are many people I know who've never seen yeah. a pretzel, let alone a black and white drawing of a pretzel. Yep. You know. <laughs> well, it's, Amer it's an American test, right? It's a Boston name. It is, that's so, it, exactly. Yeah. Or even a camel, you know, there's a picture of a camel on it. And mm. um, no, there's lots of people who don't necessarily know what a camel is or a yoke, but like there's all these items. <laughs> I think yeah. when I'm talking to people, they think I, I, I end up apologizing <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> it's a yeah. bit ridiculous. Sometimes I keep explaining that it's an American test because it is a pretzel, it's the beaver. Just keep spoiling the test. <laughs> Some items are, are really difficult. So what we want is an indi is individual baselines and some yeah. knowledge about typical progression and, um, and also their, their role in a conversation, which is, I guess, even harder to measure. It would be more your domain. Yeah. Right? Well, I feel like we're drawing to a close in terms of the, the, our allotted time. It's been um, great to chat to you today, Vitor. Thank you for joining me. Well, it's good now, to see you, especially during lockdown. Absolutely. Partial lockdown or whatever we're having right now. Yeah, mixed yeah. up lockdown, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you can find um, profiles on myself and Vitor on the NIHR Dementia Researcher website including details of how to find us on our Twitter accounts. Um, I also have a few blogs there, so please take a look. Um, it's dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk. And finally, please remember to like, subscribe, and leave a review of this podcast through our website, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and all the other places you find podcasts. Thank you for listening. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.